The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Our reflection uh, from Mark's gospel uh, hopefully will come clear as to what our response should be. Uh, Mark chapter number 9 in your scriptures. Mark chapter number 9. A few weeks ago, uh, at the end of verse number 30 and verse 31, Jesus began again teaching his disciples, saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, After three days, he will rise, but they did not understand the saying. Uh, Children can be uh, dismissed to children's church. And now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. One of the things that we will note is that the disciples were not ready for every good work yet. Um, There were still gaps in their discipleship. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So have salt in yourselves and be at peace one with another. There are two themes that have been running concurrently through Mark's gospel. The first, of course, is Jesus, who has provided all of the evidence necessary to demonstrate that he, in fact, is God's Messiah. But the second theme that has run parallel is the theme of response. How will people who are called to follow Jesus respond to the evidence that has been given. We should note that the evidence is not static or wooden. Jesus wasn't placed behind some protective covering so that you kind of just looked at him and thought nice things about him. The evidence that Jesus presented was in the reality of life. The words he spoke, words of truth, The actions that he took rooted in love and mercy and, of course, in great compassion. But the call to a deeper discipleship will require more than a surface following of Jesus. A kind of doing nice things for people who need nice things done for them. A deeper discipleship will require a cross. And a self-denying. And so it is within the context of those things that these disciples, and you and I as disciples, are called to follow Jesus. It would, of course, appear that the 12 disciples were on board with the idea of good works, but they were really falling behind in self-denial. And because they were falling behind and taking up a cross and following Jesus, they weren't really ready for 
the good works. The evidence would suggest that they had not been taking the warning of Jesus about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod very seriously. And we can see that because after Jesus tells them what lies ahead, namely his death and resurrection, what are they doing? Verse 33, well, actually, yeah, they are arguing along the way. They come to Capernaum, they're in the house, and Jesus asks them, what are you discussing along the way? They kept silent, for they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They had been arguing with each other about who is the greatest. In an article written for Forbes magazine, Carrie Zane reports, hang on to your, your hats, that an estimated $30 trillion will be inherited over the next 30 years. She writes that this will result in a significant percentage of children and grandchildren fighting for what they believe is the share of their inheritance. And they're going to fight while either one or both of their aging parents are still alive. In the same article, Ms. Zane quotes a psychologist who specializes in geriatric psychology. He suggests that the war over money is a result of our living in what is what he calls a money-obsessed culture. I quote, maximizing one's financial position is a primary motivator. The opportunity to obtain money overrides ethical behavior around the source of the money. It's that last line that grabbed my attention and I thought would be a good bridge into what we're talking about. The opportunity to obtain money overrides ethical behavior around the source of money. It reminded me of the willingness to override ethical behavior to obtain an argument over who might be greatest in the kingdom of God. And that in itself would be a very good definition of the kind of leaven Jesus has been warning his disciples about. The very problem that Jesus detected among his disciples, that they were more concerned about the Pharisees and Herod and what they could then gain in power than they were about the agenda of Jesus. You know, Mark doesn't tell us what triggers this argument. Perhaps it started to form in their minds when Jesus had told them that there would be some standing that would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it had come in power. Perhaps they were surmising among themselves who it might be that would remain, you know, left to, you know, run the kingdom for Jesus. Maybe the argument started with Peter, James, and John as they went up to the mount and saw with their own eyes Jesus transfigured before them. And then came down from the mount, and you might remember where we were a few weeks ago. The other nine were having some difficulty, right? They couldn't cast out a demon. And maybe some banter had been started among the disciples. Well, we were up on the mount. You couldn't even handle your responsibilities down. 
you know, in the valley, what's wrong with you guys? Of course we're the greatest. We got to see Jesus transfigured. Whatever started the argument, the important thing to note is that at this moment, the agenda of the disciples is not the same as the agenda of Jesus. Their concerns about prominence in the kingdom of God outweighed their concerns about Jesus and what he had been telling them. Now, now we might think that Jesus should have laid down some rules as a way to kind of control their bad behavior. And that's how Christians are kind of wired to think, right? The lack of, of concern about ethical behavior when it comes to inheriting fortunes is why there are laws and lawyers and judges and courts. But Jesus doesn't lay down any rules, does he? And it's very important to our own discipleship that we see this. Instead, Jesus offers the gift of himself to his disciples. And this gift is presented as Jesus sits down. He calls the twelve to himself. He takes a child. He places the child in the middle of the disciples And you see it there in verse number 37. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Again, I would suggest that most of us as Christians, I include myself in this, are wired more towards looking for rules and commandments. You know, Jesus, if you would have just snapped the the whip and laid down the law and told them to stop their nonsense and given them some rules, you two can't be together and you three can't be together, you got to go to time out over there, that would have taken care of the problem. But because we are more wired to look for commandments to obey, we miss promises that we are to lean into rest our faith on, and through those promises which bring us to Jesus, we are actually transformed. You see, we would have preferred for Jesus to have said to his disciples, do this or do that, and if you do those things, then you'll get to see me and my Father. But that is not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus does for his disciples what he did For others along the way, and we've noted this, others that he has healed and he has helped, he offers then to draw faith out of them and place it into the reality of their life. A woman in need of healing, a man whose child needs to be healed, raised from the dead, ultimately. And I think this drawing out of faith is not pronounced. We've got to see it, though, as part of the way Jesus is serving his disciples and this is why he asked the question in the first place what are you discussing along the way and and i would i would strongly suggest that question needs to be asked right now in this room what have you been discussing in your mind along the way thus far in the gathering, the assembling 
of God's people for worship. You know, I, I don't think we've quite yet understood that rules and attempts at behavior modification can only take people so far. I mean, the disciples knew the commandments. They had been raised in synagogue. They knew the commandments. They knew especially the commandment that said, thou shalt not covet. And yet here they are coveting power. But you know, at this point, the commandments are not making much of an impact. They are still being influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the thing that the disciples had not yet understood or had been willing perhaps to even to own was that a truer and a deeper transformation would come. But it would have to come through an actual encounter with Jesus and the way Jesus says he is to be encountered. The one who has now told them that he is going to Jerusalem to die a humiliating death by crucifixion, but that he would indeed be raised three days later. But you know, our attachment to behavior modification through rules is not the only way we respond to our discipleship. We also like to operate on the margin of what we'll call inconsequential questions the whatabouts it's interesting that as jesus has placed this child in the middle of the room and he is instructing them about how he is to be received that john pipes up in verse 38 teacher hey we saw someone casting out demons in your name we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us Marginal issues, inconsequential matters, the whatabouts. What John does here in this setting is what so many disciples tend to do when they are confronted with the hard question like the one that Jesus asked when he said, what have you been discussing along the way? Or the one that I just asked, what have you been discussing since 1030 when you walked in? this room this morning what's been occupying your mind the agenda of jesus the worship of holy god or secondary issues inconsequential matters things out here on the margins of life you know you might have thought that after the embarrassing episode the disciples recently had, you know, with the demon-possessed boy, they would not have wanted to bring up anything to do with demons. And yet here's John bringing up what he thinks is a really big problem. Someone was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but because he wasn't wearing their team jersey, John thinks this is a problem. And if I remember Luke correctly, uh, Luke tells us that John wanted that wanted to know if Jesus, if you want us to cast down fire on them. I mean, he's really vested in this marginal issue, this inconsequential matter, this secondary thing. Now again, let us not think for one moment that we haven't responded to the invitation of Jesus in similar ways. In a time 
when our nation has placed its flag firmly on the hill named godlessness, Christians still want to fight over their own power. They want to still fight over their own greatness. They are still holding on with white knuckles to their marginal, secondary issues. And all we can say is, God, help us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. You know, as I've reflected on this passage and I step back, the first thing that came to mind is, I am so grateful that Jesus didn't lose patience with the twelve. That that as he's got this child in the middle and he's instructing them again, John says, hey, what about this? I am so glad Jesus didn't say, that's it. I'm done with you people. Out of here. Bring the next group in. Because that gives me hope for me. And that gives me hope for you and us as a church. That Jesus will not lose patience with us either. And, and, and Jesus not only is patient, but Jesus then, then answers John's question. Hey, John, don't stop him. If someone wants to give you a cup of water, hey, fine, don't hesitate, take it. You're not going to lose your reward if you take some water from someone not wearing our jersey. It's okay. But you know, I, I've asked myself, well, why does John do this? And, and I, wonder, I wonder if John was doing what kids will do in school when they're not ready for a quiz. They'll, they'll, they'll bring up some current event, something that they think the teacher will be interested in, and then the teacher will look at him and go like, Oh my goodness, they actually want to talk about something important. We can put the quiz off, right? I mean, that's the way sometimes it works in the classroom, right? I don't know. We're not giving indication, but I wonder if John's trying to divert the attention of Jesus away from this critical matter of discipleship by kind of pushing him out here on the edges with these secondary issues. Jesus has just placed a child in their midst and he has just told them that if they are willing to receive this child, they will, in effect, be receiving him. And as they receive him, they will be receiving the Father that he has sent, that has sent him. And Jesus, though, isn't going to let the diversion tactic work. Now, try to, try to get the picture in your mind. Most likely, they're in Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus has grabbed a young boy. He's sitting down. The 12 are surrounding Jesus. The child is still in the middle. And then Jesus says some of the most blunt words that he has thus spoken. Listen to them carefully in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him. It would be better for him. If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, it is better for you to enter life crippled than to, with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The intensity of the comparisons that Jesus makes should tell us how serious Jesus is about the matter of discipleship. He is not going to be diverted with our secondary issues. He is not going to give us a list of rules that we've got to try meet and follow. He is going to, in a very blunt and straightforward way, tell us that discipleship is of such a serious matter that it would be better for you this than to not and have this over here. Now, I send out this warning as a necessity. What Jesus is saying here is not to be taken literally in the sense that no one should be cutting off their foot or their hand or plucking out their eye. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is in the most intense way possible, setting up a comparison for us to ponder and think, whose agenda are we following? What are the priorities of our lives as his disciples? But just because they are not to be taken literally, we cannot minimize what Jesus said in terms of comparison, because it would be better than to experience literal hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. It would be better to only have one eye, better to only have one hand, better to only have one foot. How seriously did Jesus take the matter of the disciples arguing about their own greatness? Well, I would suggest read the context. It will tell you how serious a matter he believes it to be. So as Jesus draws this lesson then, with this child placed in the middle, he says these words um, in verse number 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, now, the language there is, is uh, like a bridge. He has just been talking about fire. And now he is saying we're going to be salted with fire. Everyone is going to be salted with fire. And this then really helps us to grab the truth of what Jesus is after when it comes to our own discipleship. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, but be at peace with one another. And this is what I call a gospel conundrum. A conundrum is a confusing or difficult problem or question. So on one hand, we're told that the gospel is a declaration of peace by which we as sinners are brought into a relationship of peace with God 
through faith in Jesus, the crucified one. And we're also told to be salty. The difficult problem here isn't on the side of peace, but on the side of salt, because salt would basically, right, suggest the opposite of peace. I once and only once tried to make instant mashed potatoes and didn't know the difference between a teaspoon of salt and a tablespoon of salt. The potatoes were unable to be at peace with me or anyone else because of the effect of too much salt. So what does Jesus mean? What is he after? And how does this help us to avoid our own agendas and our marginal issues? Well, I think the key to resolving this conundrum is found in the first part of the statement. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, fire in the previous statement is a fire of eternal punishment and judgment. But in this, it is a bridge into which we understand that there is a kind of fire that does what? It purifies us. If we em embrace its purifying work, it will make us to be the kind of people who are able to be at peace with one another, but also have salt in our lives. And every day, as disciples, you and I have to choose, just as Jesus had to choose every day between the two fires. Will we run the risk of eternal judgment? Because we care about our own agendas and care about secondary issues? Or will we embrace and receive by faith the fire that then purifies us and disciplines us and brings us forth, as Peter talked about when he wrote to the church, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which fire are you choosing? Everyone is to be salted with fire. Which fire are you choosing? The fire of your own agenda? The fire of your secondary marginal issues? Or the fire that will purify you so that you can see Jesus and get on page with his agenda? And receive him as he desires to be received. And so I close with this question. It's the question that Jesus asked and it's the question that Jesus is still asking. He's asking us, what are we discussing along the way? What are we discussing along the way? Has the fire of God's Holy Spirit and the work of His Word and the work of His church burned away the pride and the arrogance so that we are being shaped with the 
virtue of humility so that as we discuss things along the way, we are seeking God's grace and God's help to encourage one another to put aside the performance-oriented version of Christianity where we kind of want to outperform other Christians, where we can find greatness in our own kingdom and attach God's name to it? Or will we seek the humility necessary, right, to be drawn into the kingdom of God in Christ because we're willing to accept the fire that truly purifies? You see, the child that was placed in the center of the discussion remained in the center of the discussion. But only now we see through that child and we see Jesus the crucified risen one, ascended, now exalted. And we would do well to remember that our discipleship then must be rooted in all of who Jesus is. He is the one who went through the fire of self-discipline and self-denial for the joy that was set before him. And in a similar fashion to the humility of a child, Jesus is saying to his disciples, he is saying to us, we must receive Jesus in the same way. Jesus could not accomplish the will of his Father and run his own agenda over here off to the other side. And neither can we. And so here's my encouragement to us today. Let us encourage one another to grow into the kind of disciples that have salt and are at peace because we are growing up and into Jesus Christ. Let us actively be praying for one another to fully embrace Jesus who went through the fire but was not abandoned to Sheol, but he rose victoriously for his people so that when they go through the fire of discipline and training and difficulty, they too can rise victoriously in his name and in his power. Let us remind one another to embrace Jesus through whom the Spirit has proceeded. The Spirit has been poured forth and that Spirit empowers us in this room to have salt and yet to be at peace with ourselves and be at peace one with another. Well, brothers and sisters, there is more at stake in all of this than $30 trillion of wealth. As massive amount of money as that is, there is more at stake than even $30 trillion of wealth that will be transferred over the next 30 years. Because your soul is worth more than that. The souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ are worth more than money. The souls of the people who live in this hamlet and the souls of the people who live in this village and the souls of the people who live in this region are worth more than this money. Souls hang in the balance. The way that we are going to impact those souls is by allowing the purifying fire to touch us, to cleanse us, so that we are with Jesus in his agenda. We are with Jesus in his work. 
We're not arguing over our own greatness. And we are not worried about those unnecessary secondary agendas. But as we go along the way discussing things, we are on the same page as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Well, as we have been saying since Mark 1, the future is Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I give you thanks for your word to us this morning. We realize that it is a good word that you have spoken to us. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be ready now to receive it. Allow your spirit to work within us to do this work, O oh Lord, so that we might be a people prepared for your use. I'm going to give you some times of quietness before we give out some further instructions about the Lord's